Welcome to Unsolved Murders Essay, a podcast series where we will be delving into gruesome homicide investigations that, at the time of producing the episodes, were still open. The objective of this series is to keep the stories of the forgotten alive and hopefully help spark a memory for anyone listening in with intimate knowledge of the cases. The views, information or opinions expressed in this series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Swisher Post, its parent company and partners. Some of the content featured in this series describes details of extreme violence. Therefore, viewers' discretion is strongly advised. Before we get into this episode, we'd like to thank you in advance for subscribing to our podcast. Every like, comment, and subscription goes a long way in helping us grow our Unsolved Murders SA community. If you're a new listener, then please do us a favor and subscribe to our channel. Unsolved Murders SA is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. You can also find the latest updates on South African true crime stories at swisherpost.co.za. Johannesburg is renowned across the globe as the City of Gold. And in the 1930s, it truly was the jewel of Africa. The city, quite literally, was anchored in gold. And for South Africans and international immigrants, it was the perfect place to start afresh with only the sky as the limit. Johannesburg drew scores of migrants from the countryside and abroad. To outsiders, the city was a mecca of dreams and the host of glamour and high society. In her article about life in Johannesburg in the early 1930s, author Kathy Monroe writes, open quote, Johannesburg in 1931 was glamorous, vibrant, exciting, and an exacting place, and at that point shifting from the frontier town of the Rand Pioneers to becoming a settled society with sharp class, social, racial, and economic strata bedding down in a town where rich rubbed shoulders with the poor, and all was not quite as our 1931 guide tried to so eagerly represent. Close quote. That year, Jacoba Schroeder was born on the 8th of June, to be specific. Jacoba, renowned later in her life and posthumously as Bubbles, was a native of Lichtenberg, an industrial town situated in the northwest, a province previously referred to as the Transvaal. Lichtenberg was situated about 230 kilometers west of Johannesburg and was established by Transvaal President Thomas Francois Burgers in 1873. The history of the town is closely associated with the life of General Delaray, who, apart from being the town's representative in the House of Assembly, was also Assistant Commandant General of the Boot Forces. Notable natives of Lichtenberg include Ferdinand Hudsonberg, apartheid South Africa's Minister of Education between 1979 and 1982, and Jacoba, an ambitious farm girl who sought the finities of life in the city of gold, but in the end fell to the irresistible allure of sex, drugs, and death, the vices of a city that never sleeps. Jacoba Scroder was one of six children birthed by Louise Anna Augusta and Ernest Albert Scroder. Her mother, Louise, the child of first-generation German immigrant parents Karl Friedrich Willem and Justina Langer, was born on 10 December 1884 in Fort White, Grahamstown. 
Her father, Ernest, was a German native born on 21 October 1877. Together, they raised Jacoba, the last born, whose siblings were Ida, Emily, Louise, Amanda, and Hugo. Jacoba's sister, Louise, died at the age of 67 on the 26th of June, 1952, and no information was found on Ernest's fate. Information available on Jacoba's early life suggests she was raised in what many would argue was a dysfunctional home. When she was only four years old, Jacoba was taken in by her extended family in Farienichen after her mother had moved to Johannesburg in pursuit of better opportunities. She would live in Farienichen for nine years, where she obtained most of her early education. It was only when she had turned 13 that she reunited with her mother in Johannesburg. By then, it was 1944, and the city was bustling with explosive economic activity owed, in part, to the country's powerhouse mining industry. This is why, for the most part, Johannesburg saw, perhaps, one of its biggest spikes in native migration. World War II was in its fifth and penultimate year, and for Jacoba, life was only starting to get interesting. The teenager lived with her mother for four years, and while little is known about why this reunion was cut short, it's said that Jacoba packed her bags in 1948 and sought greener pastures in Farenichen, where she grew up. There, she found a job working at a coal agency, and at first, this was the start to her life as an independent woman. But working hard to earn a living was never part of Bubbles' plans. The lavish lifestyle of the rich and famous, perpetuated by the glitz and glam of Hollywood's golden age, is what she dreamed of every day, and the closest resemblance to this fantasy was in Johannesburg. So without informing her family, Bubbles returned to the City of Gold two months later, this time opting to shack up with a man named Philip Stain, a 52-year-old who, at the time, was a bookmaker. The two met at a dance event in Orange Grove, the perfect hunting grounds for Bubbles who, at the age of 17, knew exactly what she wanted. An easy life filled with an abundance of material wealth and easy access to privileges enjoyed by the bourgeoisie. Stain welcomed Bubbles as a flatmate in his apartment from March 1948 until June 1949, about a year and three months. Reflecting on his time with the teenager, Stain admitted the decision to kick Bubbles out came when he could no longer deal with her abrasive demeanor when she'd had too much to drink. Open quote. She was a young woman, a little loose in her morals, but she was very sweet, except when she was drunk. Then she became unimaginable, close quote, he said. Some have argued that Stain's refusal to deal with Bubbles' difficult nature and his decision to kick her out prompted the start of her inevitable end two months later. Bubbles turned to the streets once again to find her next living companion, and not long after, she found refuge at Dorchester Mansions, an Art Deco 10-story apartment building situated on the buzzing Rissick Street. There, she shared a flat with a lady only referred to as Mrs. Griffin. No useful information is available on the woman, but history claims that she was a hostess. What that meant in the late 1940s is unclear. But by then, 
bubbles groomed by stain in the art of sexuality and the means needed to attract rich men had found comfort in her status as a good time girl and according to Mrs. Griffin, the unconventional line of work was certainly paying off for the teenager. Open quote. Bubbles was a glamour girl. She spent her day at the beauty parlour and her nights at the nightclubs. And she could be most chaining until she had a few drinks in her, of course. Then she became obstinate and difficult. Close quote. The infamous murder of Bubble Scroder starts on Thursday, 11 August, 1949. That day, the 18-year-old received a visit from a love interest named Morris Belchick. The two made plans to go out on a date on that Saturday, and sure enough, two days later, Bubbles enjoyed a great outing with Morris, which ended with a nightcap at his place in the affluent northern suburbs of Johannesburg. On Monday, 15 August 1949, less than two days before her body was discovered at a plantation in Birdhaven, Bubbles met with Morris again. This time, however, he had brought a friend along, 21-year-old David Poliak. Morris had been so thrilled about his escapade with Bubbles that Saturday, he told David all about it, and so a plan was hatched to reinvent the fun times later that Monday, and this time, Bubbles was going to bring a friend along, a woman only referenced in history as Penny. In another fateful twist, Penny was nowhere to be found that day. A decision was made by the trio to carry on with the evening's plans without Bubbles' friend, and when they parted ways, the 18-year-old went to pay Philip Stane a visit. In what turned out to be the last encounter between the two, Philip and Bubbles spent much of that Monday enjoying each other's company over a few glasses of brandy. Bubbles made her way back to Dorchester Mansions at about 6pm and when she arrived home, David and Morris had already been waiting for her. After a brief catch-up, which she apologised for keeping the boys waiting, Bubbles invited her mates to the apartment to wait while she prepared for the buzzing night ahead. Fitted in a green dress that complemented her cinched frame, her face peppered with makeup, Bubbles and her companions set off for the evening. The plan was to enjoy an intimate evening at David's house in the affluent Ilovo suburb. David's mother was out of town at the time, so the boys quite literally had the house to themselves. To allow David enough opportunity to acquaint himself with Bubbles, Morris led her ride with his friend on the way to his place. The trio arrived at the house in Ilovo at approximately 8pm. It was a 30-minute ride from Dorchester Mansions, and as they pulled into the driveway, Bubbles was introduced to David's cousin, Hyman Balfour Liebman, who at the time was 20 years old. Hyman was headed out to Houghton, about 7 minutes away, to pick up his girlfriend. When he was sold on the idea of bringing his girlfriend back to the house for a night of fun with the trio, Hyman, in another fateful twist, humbly declined. In any case, he'd already made plans for a date at the cinema that night and cancelling was obviously out of the question. Hyman drove off into the night and Bubbles, in the company of David and Morris, headed inside to commence with the evening's festivities. Inside, Bubbles met the cook, Irene. For about an hour and 30 minutes, 
The trio enjoyed friendly chatter while Irene prepared dinner. At approximately 9.30 that evening, the cook served the first of three courses. A bowl of tender asparagus soup was the starter, then followed a plate of lamb chops and fries. For dessert, the trio had shared a can of tinned peaches. Thereafter, Bubbles, David and Morris moved to the living room where more brandy was served. By then, at approximately 11.15, it was pretty clear to Morris that he was, at that point, a third wheel at the kickback. So, he left. But not long after, he called David to sound off about his envy. At the time of the call, Bubbles and David had cleared the living room and gone upstairs for a music jam session. After a brief chat with Bubbles and David, Morris finally dropped the phone and this is where his involvement in the mystery ends. It's unclear what transpired between Bubbles and David thereafter, but we know that at around midnight, Hyman returned to the residence where the couple was still awake. Hyman did not reside at the premises, but he often visited and spent nights when David's mother was out of town. Hyman met David in the hallway, and while he was not panicked, he did tell his cousin that Bubbles had had too much to drink, and he wanted to get her back to Dorchester Mansions as soon as humanly possible. Hyman went upstairs to check on Bubbles, who, in his opinion, was far from drunk. His assessment was that she appeared alright, and perhaps... David was largely exaggerating. Bubbles insisted on having another drink and Hyman obliged, cautiously serving her a weak glass of brandy. About 30 minutes after he'd arrived, Bubbles had a sudden change of heart and insisted on being taken home, not by David, but Hyman. Her claim was that her mother, Louise, was staying with her and had expected her back home by 1am. At around 1.30, Bubbles, David and Hyman walked out of the house and onto the driveway. David, who was more acclimated to the 18-year-old's tantrums, insisted on driving her home. But as soon as they had gotten out of the house, Bubbles quickly jumped into Hyman's car and refused to get out. Early signs of Bubbles' unmanageable behavior when drunk exhibited themselves when she made a fuss about wanting to drive Hyman's car, but in the end... A settlement was reached and the two set off on their way to Center City, Johannesburg. David went back into the house and 20 minutes had not gone by and already Hyman had pulled back into the driveway alone. Open quote. That girl's a lunatic. She wanted to drive and when I wouldn't let her, she made me stop and got out. I told her to be sensible, but she wouldn't listen. Close quote. Hyman told a panicked David. Furious at Hyman's nonchalance, David exclaimed, open quote, You mean you let her walk? Where did you let her out? Close quote. Open quote. At the Dunkeld bus terminus? Close quote. Hyman shrugged. Perturbed by his cousin's decision to dump a woman in the middle of nowhere in the wee hours of the morning at a time when crime was not scarce in the region, David got into his car and set off on a search for Bubbles. Hyman had told him what led up to the fiery confrontation. Bubbles, inebriated and moody, had insisted on driving, and when she did not get her way, 
she had apparently demanded to be led out of the car. According to Hyman, he dropped her off at a bus terminus and told her to follow the bus wires along Oxford Road back to Centre City, Johannesburg. In a prophetic twist, Bubbles had left Hyman with these haunting words when they parted ways. Open quote. You will be surprised to read about my corpse in the morning papers. Close quote. Hyman had brushed this warning off too. In his defense, he was tired and he desperately wanted to make it back home. Open quote. At this time of the night, I didn't think she'd come to any harm. Close quote. He told David as he made his way inside the house. It was approximately 2 a.m. and David went looking for bubbles. An hour passed and when he resurfaced on a driveway, he had not returned with any fruitful information on Bubbles' whereabouts. David and Hyman went to sleep that night, thinking that perhaps Bubbles had hitched a ride back home. What they were not prepared for was the horrifying news that came the next day. That Tuesday morning, Morris, whose mind was clearly occupied by the 18-year-old good time girl, had made a call to Bubbles but was informed that she had not returned home from her night out with David. Immediately thereafter, Morris called David to find out if Bubbles was still in Ilovo. And when he told him about the events that had transpired earlier that morning, the two rushed to Dorchester Mansions to meet with Bubbles' mother. It's unclear what discussions were had, but later that Tuesday, David, Louise, and Morris headed to Rosebank Police Station to file a missing person report. Calls were made to hospitals in the area, but no beds were occupied by Jacoba Schroeder. The search for Bubbles would not last long, since her body was discovered a day later. The gruesome discovery was made by a man named Samuel Ngibisa Mobela at a plantation in Birdhaven. After interviewing Hyman and David, it was determined that Bubbles' body had been dumped less than a kilometre away from the bus terminus Hyman claims he dropped her at. She was found lying on her back on a bed of burnt grass only 30 metres away from the road. Her face was turned to the right. Her left leg was laid over her right. Her left arm was pressed against the side of her body while the other was straightened out at a 75-degree angle. The hat she wore the last time she was seen alive was missing, as well as her shoes and coat. Investigators noted scratch marks and slight bruises on her neck, but apart from that, not much else was found. Johannesburg District Surgeon Dr. J. Friedman was called to the scene where Bubbles' body was discovered, and immediately he noticed a few oddities. The first thing that stood out was the position Bubbles' body was found in. It was as if she was carried from where she was murdered and carefully dropped to the ground, which suggested that the actual crime scene was not too far from where her body was discovered. Secondly, the shoeless Bubbles had no dirt below her feet. This supported observation that she may have been carried to the dump site. However, no other shoe prints were ever found. 
The close-fitting upper part of the dress she wore was slightly ripped and one button was missing. The stocking on her lower right leg was also partially ripped and her underwear was torn on the right side. The brassiere and petticoat she wore underneath her dress, however, were intact. The 18-year-old's body was transferred to a pathology center for examination, where it was determined that the cause of death was asphyxia and inhibition due to pressure applied on her throat. The post-mortem examination found that Bubbles had not been sexually assaulted. Bizarrely, however, pieces of a hard, clay-like substance was found lodged deep inside her throat. This material was not traced to her lungs and stomach, suggesting that it was, in all likelihood, shoved down her throat after she was killed. In her stomach, Bubbles contained undigested bits of the food she had eaten that Monday evening. More than anything, the stomach contents lent further credence to David and Morris's account of events that transpired that fateful Monday. But they were not out of the woods yet. One discovery made in the post-mortem examination was that, whether she was aware of it or not, Bubbles suffered from a condition of the thymus gland which would have made it easy to render her unconscious from only slight pressure around her neck. The bruising on her neck, it was determined, resulted from an act of strangulation. Perhaps whoever killed her came at her from behind and wrapped a scarf around her neck. The light scratches on her neck were self-inflicted wounds, Dr. Friedman found. Bubbles fought valiantly to remove the scarf around her neck, but it didn't take much time or effort to knock her out. It was declared that Bubbles was killed by 2 a.m. on Tuesday, 16 August 1949, around the same time David had gone searching for her. A full-scale investigation was launched with David, Hyman and Morris still considered persons of interest. Two months dragged on without movement in the investigation. Admittedly, investigators at the time did not enjoy access to the technology and resources available in this day and age. Therefore, any effort made to widen the scope of the murder investigation was done so manually. However, David and Hyman were named prime suspects in the murder of Bubbles and the cousins were placed under arrest on the 13th of October, 1949. David and Hyman made a couple of court appearances before they were released on bail. The hypothesis put forward by the state was largely circumstantial. David and Hyman were the last known people to spend time with Bubbles. While no actual evidence was ever recorded, it was claimed that Hyman had murdered Bubbles using a scarf after she had refused his advances. Suffice it to say, without any evidence to support this version, the matter was thrown out of the Johannesburg Magistrate's Court. The murder of Bubbles has been shrouded with conspiracy ever since. Investigators also entertained the possibility that Bubbles was a victim of a robbery gone horribly wrong. The clue in this scenario was the clay-like substance found in her throat. According to investigators at the time, 
It was customary in African communities for people to place materials in the mouths of victims of violent deaths. This was done to prevent victims from speaking ill of killers in the afterlife. However, this theory was quickly ruled out since killing bubbles would not have been necessary and more importantly, her body would not have been neatly placed elsewhere. Veteran crime writer Benjamin Bennett, who passed away in 1985, coined his own theory on what may have happened to Bubbles. Perhaps, the writer speculated, the 18-year-old was, in fact, able to hitch a ride that evening, and in the car she drove in, there were two occupants, a driver and a passenger who would have had to move to the back seat to allow Bubbles to sit in front. Bennett further suggested that a scuffle could have taken place where Bubbles was accidentally asphyxiated with a scarf and due to her condition, rendering her unconscious required little effort. Acting in haste, the perpetrators lifted her body out of the car and neatly placed it along the side of the road and the clay-like substance was shoved in her mouth after the fact to divert the focus of the investigation towards an African suspect. This theory, however strong it was, did nothing to help investigators track down the persons responsible for the death of Bubbles. Till this day, her murder remains unsolved. If you are listening to this podcast and happen to have information that could help investigators, please contact SAPS's toll-free crime stop number at 0800-10111. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.